It is always a pleasure to come to Texas. It makes me feel like there is still some sanity in the world. You can talk about guns openly. <laughs> I can't do that in Southern California. I told the guys as we were sitting around the, the uh, table last night eating that they were talking about taking their son shooting and deer hunting and what we were going to do, hog hunting, and I thought... This is not a conversation I would hear in Southern California. It was very refreshing to my ears. So uh, thank you for rescuing me for the weekend and allowing me to come spend time with you. I love men's retreats because it's just great to hang out with men and talk about issues that are uh, pertinent to us as men. The theme for this weekend is going to be the importance of relationships and one anothering. That's where we're headed for the next three messages, and what I hope to show you is how relational the New Testament is, that there is much more in the New Testament than just a Sunday morning gathering, than meeting for singing songs and uh, hearing a good expository message, but the New Testament by its very nature, as we're going to see right from the very beginning of the church starting in Acts 2, that the uh, New Testament is saturated with relationships. And uh, I hope that we leave the weekend with a, a deeper understanding of how important relationships are to the living God of the universe. And I believe that that's true because he is relational by his very nature. Just to set the tone for the, the uh, weekend, uh, think about how relational our God is. He is so relational that he was concerned about our broken relationship with him so concerned that he sacrificed his son so that we could be reconciled. That's a term of rebuilding relationship. He is so concerned about broken relationships that he sent his son to reconcile us to himself so that we could be back in relationship with the, the creator of the universe. And by his very nature, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit being in perfect relationship, loving relationship to one another, we are called to be image bearers that are in relationship with one another. So it shouldn't shock us at all that the New Testament is very highly relational. And just a tidbit that we'll talk about tomorrow in more detail, love one another is the most often repeated command of the New Testament. And that is not, tomorrow in the third message, we'll talk about why that is. And I don't believe it's uh, just because God's a nice guy, so therefore he wants us to be nice guys. Uh, there's a strategy behind the love one another commands, and we're going to explore that uh, tomorrow. So that just gives you a little taste where we're headed. And uh, why don't we pray and dedicate this time to the Lord, and then I'm going to start off with a war story since this is a men's retreat. So let's pray. Father, thank you so much for the blessing of being here and being able to open your word and share it with my brothers. Thank you, Lord, for Calvary Bible Church and the vision they have for discipleship, of fulfilling the Great Commission, and part of that vision of planning another church, living hope. And I thank you, Lord, for... Uh, the men that are gathered here from both bodies uh, this evening, we commit the next 24 hours to you that your purposes would be accomplished, not mine, uh, that your spirit 
would work in our hearts and open our eyes and soften our hearts and help us hear truth uh, in a way that we need to hear it. So again, Lord, may your purposes be accomplished. May your name be glorified. Help us, Lord, to learn to be more relational. We know, Lord, that we live in a highly independent uh, culture. We value our freedom. We value our privacy. We value our independence. Help us, Lord, to see that all of those things are countercultural to the spirit of the New Testament, that you repeatedly urge us to love others above ourselves, to die to self, to bear one another's burdens, and over and over and over again, you command us to love one another. May those things sink deeply into our hearts in the next 24 hours. We dedicate this time to you in Jesus' name. Amen. So this is a story about the Marines. Any uh, former Marines here? No Marines. They would have been yelling at that point if there was any Marines. What do, what do Marines do? Hoorah. Yeah, that's what they would have been doing at that point. So this is a story. Picture in your mind the flag going up on Mount Suribachi. I know you can picture it, the Iwo Jima Memorial. So get that image in your mind. This is a story about Iwo Jima, and it's about a story about a Marine officer named Bill Henderson. I'm going to read you a little bit of this story and then tell you an amazing thing that happened between the Navy and Marines. Now, typically, what happens between Navy and Marines? Yeah, bar fights. So uh, you're going to hear something amazing here, which I hope sets a tone for where we're headed. So on March 26, 1945, Marine officer Bill Henderson was told he could finally leave the island of Iwo Jima. He was among the first waves of men to hit the beaches on Iwo's D-Day, February the 19th. So he's being told he can leave March 26th. They had landed on February the 19th. So a month and a half later, he would survive 36 days of what scholars recognize as the most brutal combat in the recorded history of warfare. Historians describe the U.S. forces' attack against the Japanese defense as, quote, throwing human flesh against reinforced concrete. During that time, he would continue to fight, would personally inflict serious casualties on the enemy, would watch hundreds of his comrades die, and would even hold the hand of his disemboweled and dying best friend, who had less than a minute to live after a shell landed just inches from where Henderson had been sitting. The shell hit everything but Bill Henderson. The island now secured, Bill Henderson received orders to gather his men and head for the beaches and disembark the island. But after 36 days of nonstop warfare, with the Marines um, utterly exhausted, they were barely able to crawl into their boats that were to take them to the ships. When they arrived at the ships, too exhausted, they were even too exhausted to crawl up the ropes onto the ships. Now here's the amazing part of the story. The Navy men crawled down the ropes and carried each man up the ropes onto the ship. Um, I think that's a great example or a great illustration of what a, the spirit of what I hope we capture here this weekend of what scripture means when it says things like love one another, bear one another's burdens, show hospitality to one another, uh, etc. 
I'd like to invite you to turn to Acts 2. And even though the phrase one another is not mentioned in this passage, it is saturated with the idea of one anothering. What do we know Acts chapter 2 for? What would it, what, why is it famous? And may, may I move this? Is this recording? Is that what it's doing? Okay, I'll just put it up here so I can open my big Bible. There we go. Okay, so what's Acts chapter 2 known for? Day of Pentecost, and what significant thing happens on the day of Pentecost? The Holy Spirit comes, and the birth of the church happens here in Acts chapter 2. Now, I'd like to think about the birth of the church here in Acts chapter 2, and I'm going to give you an acronym that I call CARE. And the idea is that uh, this acronym, you're just going to see it saturated through the whole passage. Let me read you, uh, you have in your notes there, a little bit of a background of the day of Pentecost. And I'd like to point out, this is from R.C. Sproul's Reformation Study Bible. I'd like to give you a little bit of the background and the significance for what we're about to read as happening on the day of Pentecost. So this is literally the 50th day after the Sabbath of the Passover, which is recorded in Leviticus 23, etc. Pentecost was celebrated on the first day of the week. Now, I'm going to stop there and think about that for a second. What's obviously the first day of the week? Sunday, all right? So this is happening on Sunday, the day of Pentecost, and was one of the three three great annual feasts of Israel preceded by Passover. Then you have the references. Pentecost is also called the Feast of Weeks because it was celebrated seven weeks after Passover, the Feast of Harvest, so it's the Feast of Harvest, and it's on Sunday, because the first fruits of the harvest were gathered then, and it was also called the Day of First Fruits. Now let's read the passage, and then I'll come back to that quote. So I'm going to start with verse 37 and read through 47, and you, you remember the story. People from nations, all around the nations, were gathered for Pentecost. And they heard the gospel in their own language, which is what we believe the tongues were. They're hearing the apostles have the ability to present the gospel in a language that they never learned. And they're preaching the gospel to these people from nations, which is fulfilling the Great Commission. People from every tongue and tribe and nation are gathering in Jerusalem for Pentecost. Let's pick up reading. Now, when they heard this, they were pierced to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brother, and what shall we do? And Peter said to them, Repent, and let each of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and your children and for all who are far off, as many as the Lord our God shall call to himself. And with many other words, he solemnly testified and kept on exhorting them, saying, Be saved from this perverse generation. So then those who had received his word were baptized, and there were added that day, Sunday, the day of Pentecost, which is the Feast of Harvest, about 3,000 Souls. Let me stop there and just make some comments to set 
the tone for what we're about to read. The significance of this is that the promise to Abraham that he would be a father of many nations and that the Gentiles were going to come in is starting to be fulfilled. And when's it happening? On Sunday, the harvest, this is the Feast of Harvest, or the Feast of First Fruits, that Old Testament symbolism, the symbolism of the Old Testament, is now being fulfilled. I find that really exciting. So in a sense, part of what we're remembering on Sundays when we gather is not only the resurrection of the Lord, he rose from the grave on the first day of the week, but we're remembering when the church was founded, started on a Sunday, and the, when, which was the Feast of the Harvest, and the promise to Abraham is being fulfilled. The Gentiles are now coming to the Lord. So people from every tongue and tribe and nation are hearing the gospel in their own language. 3,000 are saved. And now reading verses 42 to 47. The Lord is up to something new here. The essence of this passage is that the Lord is establishing a new thing. The Gentiles are going to come in. The gospel is going to be proclaimed through Jews. And then, as you know, in Acts chapter 10, the Gentiles are going to start to come in. A new thing is being established. And part of the very essence of this new thing, and this is my argument for this evening, part of the very essence of this new thing is relationships. The relationships here are very close and they're intense. Verses 42 to 47. And they, I'm going to try to emphasize some words that I think the text actually emphasized. So the Lord's up to something new, and this new thing called the church is highly relational by its very nature. They were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship and to the breaking of bread and to prayer. And everyone kept feeling a sense of awe, and many wonders and signs were taking place through the apostles. And all those who believed were together and had all things in common. And they began selling their property and possessions and were sharing them with all as anyone might have need. And day by day, continuing with one mind in the temple and breaking bread from house to house, they were taking their meals together with gladness and sincerity of heart, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord was adding to their number day by day those who were being Saved. Do you hear the relationships in there? This is a highly relational passage. Now let's just start working our way down through here using my acronym of CARE. And this is what we called our small group ministry at our church in Virginia where I pastored for 14 years. We called it CARE groups. And what CARE groups stood for was connecting with one another, approaching the Lord together, Responding to each other's needs and enjoying the Lord and one another. So that's where we're headed over the next few minutes. Let's talk about connecting with one another. Look back at verse 42, and I want to show you the connecting all down through the verses. I tried to emphasize it as I was uh, talking my way down through here, but I want to show you one word in particular that's a special word. And we'll get there in just a moment. So, connecting saturates the verses. What, what does this connecting, what's it like down through the verses? So, they were continually devoting themselves. 
Verse 44, they were together. And then they had all things in common. It's an attitude word, and it's a really interesting word. And there's a relative word that's also in the passage. It's the word fellowship. I'm sure you've heard of the word koinonia. Well, this word, common, is directly related to it. It's koinos. Maybe you've heard of people studying New Testament Greek, and it's called koine Greek. That's uh, this word. The word koine means common. So think like you live in a housing development, and there's a common ground that everybody in the development owns. They had everything in common. They were sharing. There's, you're holding things in common. Uh, there's a legal partnership coming together here. So all those who believe, verse 44, were together and they had all things in koinos. Koina, I think is the actual word here which is related to the word we're going to see under point B, koinonia, the word fellowship. So they have all things in common, and then verse 45 elaborates on verse 44. So I believe verse 45 is telling you what verse 44 means. So all those who believed were together, and they had all things in common, and so verse 45 tells you what that means. And they began selling their property and possessions, And we're sharing them with all as anyone might have need. That's a really uh, interesting tense. And not to get too geeky with you here, but it's imperfect tense. And what that means is continuous action in past time. So what is being introduced here is that this became the practice right from the very beginning, the day of Pentecost. The attitude here. From the very beginning, the church is launched on a Sunday as the harvest is starting to come in on the day of Pentecost, the Feast of Harvest, the day of first fruits. And part built right into the harvest coming in is that they have a partnership together and the continual practice built in right from the very beginning, which is the tense of verse 45, is that they made it a practice to be selling their property and possessions and were sharing them with all as anyone might have need. Now before, and then also uh, verse 46, then I want to make a comment about the, another word about the word common. Day by day, they're continuing with one mind in the temple and breaking bread from house to house and they were taking their meals together. They're with one mind And they're together. You should start hearing themes from the rest of the New Testament. Like Philippians chapter 2. Make my joy complete that I would hear that you are of one mind. In just a moment we're going to talk about what are some things that ruin this commonality. And part of what ruins the commonality is when we're not of one mind. Uh, One of the things that I do, and I'm not sure if I'm really happy that I have the reputation of having this as a specialty but I help do consultation with church conflicts. And it's not really a very fun job uh, to do. And when people are not of one mind, and they're not, as Philippians 2 talk about, talks about being servants of one another and esteeming one another better than themselves, you end up in church conflict. So what leads to commonality? It is esteeming one another. 
above yourself and being of one mind, set on one purpose. Uh, Philippians chapter 2. So they have one mind there together. Now, think about this in contrast for a moment of how individualistic we've made the New Testament. This, is, this could shock you if you're awake enough to be shocked right now. What, think about what we've done to the communion service. We make it our own private time. We have our own little cup. And we have our own worship service between us and the Lord. That is contradictory to even what the word communion means. Listen to the word communion. It's made up of two words. What are they? Common union. It's not about my individual worship between me and the Lord, but that's what we as the American church have made the communion service. It's about, hey, this is our time to remember our common Savior and the unity that we have in Christ. We are the body in Christ, which is Paul's favorite phrase. He uses some type of form of in Christ, in him, with him 104 times. In the New Testament, Paul talks about who we are in Christ. How do we tend to think about that? My individual identity in Christ. That was not Paul's purpose. It is we are the body and we are in Christ. And communion is our common union of remembering what we as the body have as we remember what our head did for us. Uh, Think about other nations and the way they celebrate communion. And by the way, I am not endorsing this. But um, Rose and I were in Russia two years ago teaching at Samara at the TMAI in Samara. And I had the privilege of speaking at Moscow Bible Church. Uh, It's a new church plant and they were already running like 250 people. It was Great, just a very vibrant body in the city of Moscow. Well, we had communion. And uh, guess what they do? They share a common cup. And Rose and I were really glad that we were the very first people in the row that it was being shared with. And I was trying to imagine what it would have been like to be number 250 in the back of the auditorium. And as each person would drink out of the goblet, they would wipe it and pass it to the next person and wipe it. And I, as I was worshiping and having communion, I kept thinking, I sure, and it was wine, I was thinking, I sure hope the alcohol content is doing something with the germs there uh, in, uh, in that There is something about that that captures more of the essence of what communion is supposed to be about. Um, What he did with the bread, they had a loaf of bread, unleavened bread, and he held it up and had a dedication of the loaf of bread, but it was one piece of bread, and then he broke it in pieces, representing the body of the Lord, and then being broken for each individual. Even that was representing our common unity in the Lord as we remember what our our head did for us. One of the themes that you, kind of an undercurrent you ought to hear over the next three messages is American culture is really individualistic and the church needs to fight against that. We need to fight against this tendency of our rugged individualism, I will do things by myself, etc. So start hearing They had all things in common. Koinonia, even the word fellowship, 
means joint partnership. So connecting saturates the verses. Let's go on to talk about fellowship. This is based on that same word, koinos. So here we have koinonia. Verse 44 says, And all those who had believed were together, and they had all things in common. Uh, Back in chapter 4, you get a real sense of what this word means. Look at chapter 4, verse 32. Here's that idea that it was just, this became the practice of the early church. 4.32 says, And the congregation of those who believed were of one heart and soul. That's worthy of more study and meditation. What does it take to get a congregation to be of one heart and soul? That sounds like intent on a purpose, headed the same direction. Not one of them claimed that anything belonging to him was his own, but all things were common property. The way I heard the president of our school say it years ago, Back when I had no idea that he would be my boss someday. And when he was preaching through Acts chapter 2, I heard John MacArthur say way back when I was a seminary student, uh, if you have something I need more than I need it, it's yours. That that was the spirit of Acts chapter 2. If you have something that I own and you need it more than I need it, it's yours. Uh, They had all things in common. They began selling their property and possessions back in chapter 2, and they were sharing them with all as anyone might have need. Uh, Let's get a little bit of historical background on why this was necessary. I've heard that the population of Jerusalem during this time, during these festivals like Passover, Pentecost, could swell into the hundreds of thousands now think about what's going on here logically. All these people, we earlier in the chapter, and I referred to it, people are coming from nations all over the world. And they're here for the festival. And now the day of Pentecost happens. And everybody that are the new believers are sensing something new and exciting is happening. Well, there's no room in the inns. So where are people staying? They're staying in homes. And you're having to show hospitality to these new believers who have come to Jerusalem. And there's 3,000 new believers. And they weren't just all from Jerusalem. They couldn't just go home to their new homes. They were from all over the known world at that time. And so the believers in Jerusalem, who are the new believers, part of the foundation of the church, are welcoming into their homes the new other new believers from the other parts of the world. And that's why we get verses like verse 46, that they were breaking bread from house to house and they were taking their meals together with gladness and sincerity of heart. Fellowship. Um, You know what I picture there? We'll we'll get to it under point E. We'll talk about it a little bit more of enjoying one another. So we'll save some thoughts for that. But here's what I picture. I picture... Like what we were having tonight when we stopped at that awesome barbecue place. And it was, it was enjoyable. I just sat there afterwards and looking at the men that were there. And you were just enjoying conversation. 
with one another. And that's what's happening here. They're breaking bread with gladness and sincerity of hearts. I picture just a bunch of happy Christians sitting around the table hanging out and enjoying their relationship with the Lord together. They're talking about the Lord and just enjoying showing love and hospitality to one another and caring for one another's needs because there's these there's thousands of new believers in town and they don't have any place to stay and somebody's got to feed them and so they're opening their homes and showing hospitality to one another just to give you an idea of what this word common means or to get more of a sense of fellowship because it would be really easy to take away that this just means church fellowship dinners but it has a whole lot more depth than that. Let me show you a couple of passages. Turn to Titus chapter 1, verse 4, and we see the term common faith. And then we're going to look at Jude, verse 3, and it ought to remind us of another New Testament principle. <clears throat> Excuse me. Titus chapter 1, verse 4. To Titus, my true child... In a common faith. Same word, common. Koina, koinos, related to the word koinonia. So koinonia is not just eating together. It's about our common faith. My true child in a common faith, grace and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Savior. Keep thinking as we turn back to Jude, verse 3. Keep thinking the phrase in Christ. We are in Christ. We are the body and we are in Christ together. Jude verse 3. Beloved, while I was making every effort to write to you about our common salvation. Titus, common faith. Jude, common salvation. Paul likes the phrase, we're in Christ together. He's the head, we're the, we're the body, and we are in Christ, in Him, together. Uh, this is the atmosphere of the, of the church. And that's another thing that I hope you get out of these three messages. That wouldn't it be great if a visitor came into Calvary Bible or Living Hope and sensed, this is a church that's together. And they, they sensed, This is a church that loves one another. If love one another is the most often repeated command of the New Testament, should not that be the atmosphere of our churches? That when people walk into the church, they sense this is a body that is united and they love one another. Unfortunately, I'm 57. My dad was a pastor, so I've grown up in the American church, the American evangelical church. My dad went through conflicts. I've been through conflicts. I do conflict management and conflict intervention as a specialty. I can tell you that that is not the atmosphere of many American churches, love one another. Uh, When I do this, I teach conflict resolution at the master's college and the seminary to future pastors. And I ask classes, how many of you, either you, your parents, or somebody that's very close to you has gone through a church conflict? Typically, two-thirds of the class raises their hands. 
And then I'll say something like, love one another is the most often repeated command of the New Testament. How are we doing as the American church? Thumbs up or thumbs down? And I inevitably get my college students and seminary students will give the American church a thumbs down on how we're doing on love one another. Now, I'm not saying that to be a downer. What I'm saying is, let's correct this, that we are called, the atmosphere of the church is to be an atmosphere of love one another most often, and part of it has to be because of our American individualistic mindset Most often we're seeing the opposite of that because we're not practicing the one another commands of the New Testament. So I have a principle there in the notes. In the early early church culture, everything leaned toward community. In our culture, everything leans toward independence. It's just the opposite. We value privacy, my space, my time, my independence. So if Calvary Bible and Living Hope are going to be these type of churches, guess what has to happen? People have to do exactly what Scripture says. I've got to learn to esteem others better than myself. And your time is more important than my time. We're going to see tomorrow in the second message, we're going to look at Romans 12, which is the chapter in the New Testament that has more one another commands than any other place in the New Testament. So it's a very logical place to go. And one of the commands there is... Uh, give preference to one another. It's those types of things that then build an attitude of connecting in a church. When we are purposely honoring others above ourselves, your opinion is more important than my opinion. How can I serve you? What are your burdens that I can bear, uh, etc.? Let me show you just interesting passage, show you again how individualistic we are as the American church. Turn to Colossians chapter 3. This was shocking to me when I was preaching through Colossians years ago. And I started translating, and I was translating my way through Colossians. And I got to Colossians chapter 3, and this was astounding to me when I started to realize what was going on in Colossians 3. And it was the opposite of the way I had been taught to interpret the passage. And just by just reading it at first glance, would have normally interpreted the passage. I'm going to begin reading with verse um, 13 and read through 17, just to get a sense of the flow and show you how relational it is. So here's part of the put-on commands. Now you're in Christ. You know the flow. Put off the old man. Now you're putting on the new man. What are you putting on? You're bearing with one another. You're forgiving each other. Whoever has a complaint against anyone, just as the Lord forgave you, so also should you. Beyond all these things, put on love, again, about unity and about the body, which is the perfect bond of unity. Uh, Let me just point out, when I say that love one another is the most often repeated command of the New Testament, it's, I think, 22 times, uh, depending on how many you count. That wouldn't even be counting passages like this that refer to loving one another, but don't give a direct command. So there's even more passages that say things like, beyond all these things, put on love. But 22 times were directly said, love one another, love one another, love one another, love one another. It's repeated over and over. Francis Schaeffer, uh, Schaeffer, the great Christian philosopher, wrote a little book called The Mark of a Christian. 
And it's one of his most well-known books. And the mark of a Christian, he says, is what the Lord said in the Gospel of John. By this will they know that you are my disciples, that you love one another. So Paul writes, beyond all these things, put on love, which is the perfect bond of unity. Now, let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts. Here's how I was taught to interpret that. That this was a decision making verse and if you're making decisions it's about you got to get peace first in your heart now does that fit the flow of the context you can talk back to me even though i have the microphone does that fit the uh, the flow of the context of now now we've switched topics to decision making is that what the context is about what's the context about it's about love it's about body life it's about the church with Christ as the head, and how are we relating to one another? So I was taught that Paul now switched to, you, you, this is about decision making, and let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to in which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful. It doesn't even make sense that you interpret that as a decision making verse. It's about, no, be unified. Opposite of conflict, let peace rule. Your is not you individually. Your is plural. And you were called in one body. This is very, very, very important to the God of the universe. He's creating a new thing. And it's called the church. And the church has a head called Christ. And we are the body of Christ. And if we are going to be like Christ, we are going to be relational. Because he is part of the Godhead, and God the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are in perfect, loving relationship with one another. And uh, you can very easily get into image-bearing theology and what it means that we're made in the image of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit in perfect relationship with one another. Now, verse 16, it gets even more shocking. I was taught this about verse 16. Memorize the Bible Meditate the Bible and let the Bible be saturated in your mind. Let the word of Christ richly dwell within you with all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with thankfulness in your hearts to God. Again, is that what this, the context is about? It's not about you individually meditating in the Bible. It's about the body... And it's all plurals down through here. Let the word of Christ Christ richly dwell. And the within you could be translated among you. It's plural. So be a Christ-saturated church is what Paul is saying. Let the message about Christ saturate you as a body. It's not you memorize the Bible and meditate in the Bible. Uh, We as Americans tend to just think individualistically about every passage and we turn it into my own personal little private time between myself and God. When the New Testament leans toward community, we lean toward individualism. And we are so individualistic that we read the Bible through individualistic eyes and we make passages that were meant to be about the community, about me and my private walk with the Lord. And that's not the way Paul thought. Paul thought community. He thought body. He thought we are the body whose head is Christ. So let the word of Christ richly dwell among you with all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another. Does it make sense now why he says 
sing songs to each other, you're encouraging each other, and you're worshiping together. And then whatever you, not singular, it's whatever you, plural, do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, giving thanks through him to God the Father. It's all about the body, and the body is connecting with one another. This all starts in Acts chapter 2, the very first day. It's about what did they have in common, and we have koinonia, and we are fellowshipping, remembering Christ who is the head. Now, let's think about ways to connect, and I'm not going to do a whole lot with this because pretty much uh, the whole message tomorrow morning is Romans 12, and it's going to be about one anothering, and that phrase, one another, which, again, Romans 12 is the place that mentions one another's more than any other place in the New Testament. And we're going to do an in-depth look at what does the phrase one another mean. And I'll give you a lot of ideas then about ways to connect. But let me just give you one here and then talk a little bit about what ruins connecting. Um, so ways to connect. Just one thought here. Don't you get the impression that this takes time? I mean, I read Acts chapter 2, and I go, wow, that takes time. They're sharing meals together. They're looking out for each other's needs. They're worshiping together. You know, we uh, live in a culture that's pretty busy. And you know, we talk about, how you doing? Busy. <laughs> I, what's going on in your life? Oh, I'm busy. And uh, a, a main evangelical writer, Kevin DeYoung, wrote a book a couple years ago. Did you hear this book? The title of it is Crazy Busy. Uh, Just why are we so busy as a culture? Uh, If we're going to connect, part of this is, you know what, we've got to start learning to, and I'm pointing fingers at me too, and I'm really, really trying to work on this, of valuing, connecting, and relationships much more than I have in the past. Of I've got to allow time for this, and it can't always be about my task list. And my to-do list, what I have to get done for today. If I am so busy that I don't have time for relationships, I can guarantee to you, you are too busy. From God's standards, he is relational. Our God is a relational being. I said it before, I'll say it again for emphasis. He is so relational that he sent his son to die on the cross so that you could be reconciled to him. He cares about relationships. If we're not allowing time in our schedule, our busy schedules, we are too busy. We've got to figure out, okay, these are things that are taking up my time. Relationships, we're always making decisions about priorities. Relationships have to get bumped up on the priority list. Uh, Even though we live in a culture that values being task-oriented and task uh, driven, And I'm a very task-driven person, but I'm really, really trying to work hard on bumping up on the priority list. No, it is okay to be relational. In fact, God wants me to be relational. And I've got to build into my schedule being relational. So what's, what ruins this connecting? Point D in the outline. What ruins the connecting? Well, I've already hinted at this. It's things like the opposites of Philippians chapter 2, or James 3. Let's read that passage, and I'm going to take you to a passage 
that's not there. And then I want to tell you an illustration because it would be um, easy to think, well, I'm just not that kind of person. And I want to give you an illustration about learning to be relational. Turn to James chapter 3 first, though. And I've read these at congregational meetings before when I was pastoring. One of the churches I pastored was a combination of elder government and congregational government. So I like to read this before a congregational meeting. You'll get the sense of why. James chapter 3, beginning with verse 13. Who among you is wise and understanding? Let him show by his good behavior his deeds in the gentleness of wisdom. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your heart, do not be arrogant and so lie against the truth. This wisdom is not that which comes down from above, but is earthly, natural, demonic. I've been in some congregational meetings that were pretty demonic. Um, For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there is disorder in every evil thing. I've seen a little bit of that in congregational meetings too, disorder. But if it's true wisdom, so what ruins the connecting? It's not godly wisdom. It's the ungodly wisdom that comes from selfish ambition and jealousy. Verse 17, though, the opposite, though, real wisdom, wisdom from above, is pure. Here's a characteristic of wisdom, peaceable. So is the person peaceable? Is the person gentle? Is this person reasonable? That's a characteristic of godly wisdom. Full of mercy and good fruits, unwavering and without hypocrisy, and then a notoriously difficult verse to translate. So if it sounds, when I'm reading New American Standard, if it sounds different than your translation, don't be surprised. And the seed whose fruit is righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. Remember, there's no chapter divisions in the original, so let's flow right into chapter 4. What is the source of quarrels and conflicts among you? This was already happening in the book of James. Uh, This is the first New Testament letter, uh, chronologically speaking. So there is already conflicts in the church. This is probably uh, about the time of Acts 6, 7, 8, something like that. Acts 8 is about the time when this would have been written probably. What is the source of the quarrels and conflicts among you? Is not the source pleasure? Uh, Hedone is the Greek word, hedonism. That is strategizing, that's the word wage, stratugo is the Greek word, that is waging war in your members. So why are there quarrels and fights in the body? It's my hedonism, my pleasures. And my pleasures are strategizing to get what they want inside of me. So you're strongly desiring and do not have, verse 2. I think the New Testament has me figured out. of what's going on on the inside. And I have a bad case of the I wants. And it's the bad case of the I wants, like Madam Blueberry and Veggie Tales, that um, she's so blue she doesn't know what to do, if you remember that one. Yeah, you have to have kids to know about Madam Blueberry, or grandchildren, I guess. That's one of my favorite Veggie Tales, I think. And it's the bad case of the I wants that ruins connecting its selfishness selfish ambition etc you see the same thing in philippians 2 turn with me to ephesians chapter 4 <clears throat> ephesians chapter 4 if you would please 
Because some might be sitting here saying, well, I'm just not a relational person. And what I would say to you is you can learn to be more relational than you realize. You know, I'm just a quiet person. I'm not, I'm not relational. You can learn to be relational. Let me remind you about what we're about to read, that it is a command. So here at the transition of the book of Ephesians, Paul writes, I therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, entreat you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you've been called. I could go into a whole lot of background to how that fits the context, but please believe me when I say that he is here at the transition, the hinge point of the book, as the the shift is changing from doctrine to daily life or from position in Christ to practicing your position in Christ, that it is significant that he starts off the list of practicing your position in Christ with relationship skills. So think about it. He says, walk like you're called to walk. Now, how are you called to walk? It's about other people. Christ-likeness should show in relationships with other people. Humility, gentleness, patience, showing forbearance to one another in love, being diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Back in chapter 1, he says, let's get the theme of the book a little bit or the flow of the book a little bit. Back in chapter 1, he says, God has lavished grace on us. And he has redeemed us. Now he's saying, walk in a manner worthy of your calling. What's your calling? You were redeemed. You've been shown lavish grace. So, put the two together. You've been shown lavish grace. What are you called to do with other people? Show lavish grace. God redeemed brokenness in relationships. What are you called to do? Redeem brokenness in relationships. God worked hard at reconciliation. What are you called to do? Endeavor to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you've been called. Our God is highly relational. He cares very much about relationships. And I believe you can grow in these character traits. Uh, Just think about the opposites for a moment. I'm doing a lot of talking here, so I'm going to let you talk back with me just a little bit. And then we'll keep moving, and I want to tell you a story about a a guy I helped disciple that really learned to be relational. And I believe you, too, can learn to be more relational. Um, Opposite of humility, what would that be, obviously? Pride. What does pride do in relationships? Or what does pride do to relationships? Why does it kill them? So it's myself, it's about me. Think about when there's relationship tension and there's pride. It's like, I'm just waiting for you to finish talking so I can get the last word in. While the other person is talking, you're not really engaged in the conversation of hearing what the person's concerns are. You're hearing, how can I refute that person's argument? I just want to refute the argument. My argument is superior to your argument. Uh, Humility strengthens relationships because it says things like Philippians chapter 2, esteem others better than yourself. Look not out to your own interests, but also the interests 
of, of others. So instead of listening for the weaknesses in the argument, you're listening for, why is this person really concerned about this? And what, what are they afraid of? What can I, how can I help alleviate this person's concerns? You're being a servant instead of, how can I assert my rights? Gentleness. What's the opposite of gentleness? Harshness. What's it like to be around a harsh person? How do you feel? So it doesn't feel safe. You want to get away from the person. Um, Here's the point. You could go through every one of these character traits, and you can think of the opposites. The opposites of every one of these tear down relationships. Practicing these builds up relationships. Uh, You could go through and just give yourself, do this for your devotional time, just for some self-evaluation, as the Puritans would say, take your soul to task. Uh, Read these and think about, okay, what's the opposite of patience? Well, obviously impatience, but another word would be irritability. Um, What's it like to be around an irritable person? It's like you feel like you're walking on eggshells. It's just not safe to be around this person. So are you a person that is strengthening relationships and building up relationships, or are you a person that, by practicing the opposites of these character traits, is tearing down relationships? We're talking about ways to connect and what ruins connecting. Let me tell you about my friend Jeff. You can learn to be more relational. Uh, Jeff was a guy in our church that was... He's an administrative mastermind, and he was the chairman of our missions committee. And we were a church of 200, 250, depending on how many Virginia Tech students were there, because our church was about three blocks from Virginia Tech campus. And so on any given Sunday, we could fluctuate by 50, depending on the 50 students decided to check out another church uh, on that Sunday. So church of 200, 250 we had missions conferences that would rival churches of a thousand because of Jeff. Jeff was an administrative mastermind. He loved to plan. I didn't have to worry about anything. When I delegated it to Jeff, I knew it was going to be done well. But Jeff was not very relational. Jeff was about tasks. Jeff was about to-do lists. And his uh, wife came to me and uh, crying and I had done premarital counseling with them and Tyla came to me crying and said we're just not resolving conflict it's always Jeff's way or the highway and I had a really good relationship with Jeff so I took my brother aside and uh, practiced some one anothering with my brother and lovingly admonishing him and just trying to figure out okay Jeff let's think this through why are you harsh why do you And it came down to a theme. I know you've heard a lot about the heart at Calvary Bible, but it came down to a theme of control in his life. And it was just like, if Tyler would just do what I wanted to do, everything would run great uh, in the house. And so that came across as demanding and harsh and easily irritated, etc. So I was also mentoring Jeff to be a shepherd in the church. Well, you can't have unrelational shepherds. That's an oxymoron. Right? Shepherds are relational. Now, not every shepherd I know is relational, but shepherds should be relational. The shepherds love sheep and care about sheep. And uh, so Jeff had to learn to be more relational. 
So one of the assignments I gave Jeff was, okay, Jeff, no more to-do lists on Sunday. Sunday morning to Jeff was go to church to hear an expository message, sing songs, and to delegate responsibilities to my missions committee. And he carried his to-do list with him to church. And I said, okay, no more to-do list on Sunday morning. Do that during the week if you want to, but no more to-do list. Sunday morning is about learning to connect with people. I want you to have at least two significant conversations with people on Sunday morning. That means you have to engage them in conversation, ask them questions about themselves, and end by asking them for a significant prayer request and promise them that you're going to pray or or ideally spend time in prayer with them right then. He said, I don't even know how to do that. I don't even know how to engage people in conversation and ask questions to get into their lives. So that's what we practiced during our discipleship time. So we came up with five questions for him to learn to ask people, to learn to break down barriers, to, to ask questions, and then eventually get to prayer requests and then offer to pray with people. You know, Jeff became an expert at that. He, uh, he would meet people in the foyer, and he would just start going deep, engaging them with concerns. I could see him praying in the congregation. It was about the same time that I was transitioning out to California And about six months into our new ministry at the Master's College, I get a phone call from Jeff. And you know what Jeff was doing? He was calling just to check on me. He was calling just to see how I was doing and how can I pray for you. Uh, One of the lies of our culture is that your personality is fixed and I'm just not a relational person. I can't change. Well, if you can't change, you can't believe in progressive sanctification. Because we can all grow and change to be like our Savior. And I would urge you, if Calvary Bible and Living Hope are going to be these types of churches, everybody in the body, not just the shepherds and the elders, uh, etc., have to learn uh, to be relational. What are the counseling implications of this point? Well, counseling by its very nature is relational, right? Uh, I try to think of when I'm counseling people, I... This new counselee is a new friend. How can I become a friend to this person? How can I connect with this person? Uh, Here's another counseling implication. Counseling and discipleship are a body effort. I just got off the phone this afternoon with our pastor, and we have a husband and wife who are in desperate condition, and believe me, it is a body effort. They have five children. They are dirt poor. Their marriage is uh, in bad shape. He doesn't have a job. I mean, there's just a boatload of issues, and it's more than one counselor can handle. That's part of the beauty of the church doing counseling, by the way. it's uh, We have something the secular world would die for. I know enough about secular therapies to know that if they understood what the church has, they would say, that's what we're aiming for, to get a group of people surrounding people that are in trouble and helping them. We have the body Uh, So our pastor and myself this afternoon, we were, uh, maybe you saw me talking on the phone if you were at the barbecue place, and this is what we were talking about, is how do we get the body mobilized to help this this family that's in crisis right now? They just got an eviction notice, and um, it's a pretty desperate situation. I spent a lot of time on that one because I wanted to give you a sense of the passage, but let's go back to Acts 2. And I promise that I'm going to 
do the next three points rather quickly now that I've given you the tone of where we're headed for the weekend. So A in my care group outline stands for approaching the Lord together. Now you can approach um, a Sunday morning worship service or a worship time two different ways. You can approach it as your individualistic, your own personal worship time, or it can be about, no, this is about the body, and this is about the church singing together, and we're encouraging one another. If it's an individualistic worship time, you may not care about whether you're singing loudly and enthusiastically worship songs. If it is about the body, you're going to say, hey, I need to be a good example to the rest of the body, and I need to be singing these songs like I, I mean them, and I need to be thinking about the songs. Have you ever stood around people that aren't singing, and, it, and you, the worship leader singing his heart out, and people around you aren't moving their mouth, and you go, well, I'm afraid to sing right now. What are they going to think of my, my voice? It's... Uh, uh, This passage, they're approaching the Lord together. So point A, the passage is about the Lord. Uh, The Lord is the common denominator in Acts chapter 2. For example, verse 43. Everyone kept feeling a sense of awe and many wonders and signs were taking place through the apostles. Why were they feeling a sense of awe? Because God was up to something really big. God is the hero of the passage. Verse 47, they're praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord was adding to their number day by day those who were being saved. He is building a new thing called the church, which then the rest of the New Testament elaborates on and calls it a body. Now look at worship in the passage. And One little point about church ministry here. What you see in this passage is both big group ministry and small group ministry. You see worship in the big group, and then you see smaller groups together. Paul follows the same pattern later on in the book of Acts. He's saying he met with the church, he taught them the word, but then he also went house to house, and he was meeting with smaller groups. Big group small group Um, and it's all saturated with who the Lord is so in verse 42 there's prayer they're continually devoting themselves to the apostles teaching to fellowship there's koinonia to the breaking of bread and to prayer verse 43 there's a sense of awe why is it awe it's because God's up to something big verse 46 They're in the temple. That's obviously a place of worship. This passage is saturated with worship and approaching the Lord together. I I can't think of much more encouraging things in my life than being in a good worship service. Being with a body of believers that really want to worship and you just leave and your heart is uplifted. You just, man, that singing was great. That worship service was great. The message was great. The fellowship with each other was great. And you leave just refreshed. Um, I sometimes think that's what heaven's going to be like. One continual amazing worship service plus one amazing continual time 
of loving one another. The two great commandments. Love God, love others. Heaven's going to be the perfect example of that. Loving God, loving others. Verse 46. Breaking bread is mentioned two different times in the passage. One time, I think, and this is not a hill I'm going to die on, but verse 42 says breaking of bread into prayer. So in that context, I think it is probably referring to communion because it's a worship context. Verse 46 says they're breaking bread from house to house and having meals together. I think it's probably uh, talking about uh, eating together, but maybe they were even having communion house to house with one another. And then verse 47, they're worshiping, they're praising God and having favor with all the people. Worship, approaching the Lord together, is saturating this. Uh, What are the advantages of worshiping together? Prayer unites people. Uh, Our care group, uh, Rose and I love our care group. And until recently, we had a lady in our care group, and I won't go into all the gory details, but this lady was uh, pretty raw because she was, because of our church's ministry to her, she was really, for the first time in her life, really starting to deal with that she had grown up in a home where she had been uh, sexually molested by her three brothers from the time she was nine until she was almost 20. It's uh, just a horrifically gross story. And our church was helping her try to deal with forgiveness not being such a control freak. She had horrible control tendencies because she didn't want to let anybody hurt her. She didn't want to let anybody get close. She wasn't going to let anybody hurt her again. Well, this woman in our care group, she would just plead for our prayers as she was dealing with anxiety and fear. And our care group, we had, this was not just prayer for, you know, Aunt Sally's going to the hospital and is going to have surgery. That's okay. This was prayer for our sister who's in intense pain. And our care group, we were pouring our hearts out to the Lord for her. Guess what happened to our care group? We were a much closer group. One person was vulnerable and shared very deep prayer requests. The rest of us got a sense of the urgency and we were pouring our, and this was not just unpassionate prayer. I'm talking about prayer with tears for our sister who was hurting. And the net result, we ended with unity. Uh, Acts chapter 2. What are they doing together? They're sensing all, something special is happening, and these people are devoting themselves to prayer. And it ended up in unity for them as a body. As we already saw in Colossians chapter 3, singing together, worshiping, promotes unity. I just did a men's retreat a couple months ago up in the Sierra Nevada range near Fresno. And I told those men, it was a Harvest Bible Chapel. And I don't know if I've ever heard a group of men sing like they did. I was joking with them that I was glad that our building codes in California are required to withstand earthquakes because their singing could have brought the house down. They were just filling that room with singing. And once you get the sense of everybody is engaged in this and they're singing their hearts out, don't you just get wrapped up in that as well? And you just leave encouraged, singing together. Can you imagine what these first worship services sound like as they're singing together and praising 
God, that would have been an awesome experience as they're sensing awe. They know God's up to something big. So you know what this means, and this is the third bullet point that doesn't have a point there. What that means for you is go to church prepared. (laughs) Go to church prepared. Uh, This is about encouraging others. This means things like deal with your fear of man. And if others are not singing around you, you still sing. (laughs) Overcome your fear of man and think about the words. Engage in the words and uh, worship. And it's going to end up in the net result being, wow, that was an amazing worship service. Counseling implications of this point. Numerous counseling implications. One of them would be we've got to teach people to be worshipers. Uh, our God is an awesome God. We need to teach people to be worshipers of him on Sunday and every day of the week. It means things like for us as men that we're leading our families in family worship. Uh, family worship can lead to unity uh, in a church or in a, in a family of we're leading our families in prayer and singing together and devotional times together. Uh, one of the things that I do in marriage counseling, one of the first things I do with men is teach them how to lead their families in family worship uh, so that they can be worshiping together each day or many days of the week as a family, and then they're gathering with their church on Sunday and worshiping. Uh, it leads to unity. Third point, responding to each other's needs. That should be obvious from the passage. I already mentioned, so the passage is saturated with this. The breaking of bread. They had to share food with each other because there's all these new believers that didn't have homes. So they had to show hospitality to one another. You can look up 1 Peter 4 on your own, but it really shows uh, just how much the body is to be taking care of each other's needs. That's a passage that talks about showing hospitality uh, for one another. So the passage is saturated with caring for one another, responding to each other's needs. We won't look at the verses, but isn't it obvious that our Lord cared about others' needs? So our Lord's a model of this. Blind people, hungry people, poor people, lame people, Our Lord is very tuned in to needs. How about, give you another idea. How about on Sunday, I often pray this. As a pastor on Sunday, you know, I'd I'd be standing there and if I wasn't engaged in a conversation, I would say, Lord, help me be tuned in to someone that I need to talk to this morning. Lord, help me to know if there's someone here that I, I, need to, I need to be aware of some kind of need in their life. And inev- inevitably, somebody would come to mind. Or I'd look and I'd see somebody standing off by themselves. And I'd say, okay, I'm going to that person. This Sunday, or some Sunday, just say, Lord, help me to be more tuned into needs. Who are the people here that may have some kind of need? Um, Responding to each other's needs. Obviously, your small groups are designed to do that. Our Lord is the ultimate example of this. He is tuned in to the the burdens, the needs of other people. Matthew chapter 9. It's not in your notes. This phrase is beautiful. It's the famous passage about praying the Lord of the harvest to send forth laborers into the harvest. But listen right before that. 
it says, our Lord looked at the multitude. Don't miss the next phrase. And his heart was moved with compassion for them. And he saw that they were as sheep without a shepherd. Our Lord had a tender heart toward other people's needs. Four times in the Gospel of Matthew alone were the phrases used that Jesus had a heart of compassion. Heart of compassion. Heart of compassion. So our model is the Lord. Obvious counseling implications or discipleship implications of this. We've got to be people that have a heart of compassion for other people. That's one of the... By the way, in Ephesians 4, all of those character traits I listed that walk worthy in a manner of your calling, one of them is heart of compassion. Literally in Greek, it means to be moved deeply with the needs of other people. These verses that we're reading, remember, it's Acts 2. It's the foundation of the church. They are setting a foundation, which means they are setting a precedent for the rest of the New Testament. The themes that we're reading here in Acts 2, don't you keep hearing these things echoed throughout the rest of the New Testament? Caring for one another, serving one another, loving one another, worshipers of God together, etc. These verses, the very first day, day of Pentecost, are setting the atmosphere of what the church is to be like. Then the last one, this is fun. Enjoy the Lord. And one another. Where do you see enjoyment in the passage? Well, they're praising. (laughs) Verse 47. Praise and rejoicing go hand in hand in Scripture. Many churches, you wouldn't know that. (laughs) Praising and rejoicing are supposed to go hand in hand. The Psalms are full of that theme. So that leads me to ask you a question. Is there joy in your praise? (laughs) You know how you get there? Think about the words and let them affect your heart. When you're singing songs, think about the words. Say, Lord, how can I help? I'm reading about or I'm singing about I am redeemed by the blood of the Lamb. Oh, Lord, I remember back when I was saved and I was a helpless, hopeless, hellbound sinner. Lord, I don't deserve grace, but I've been redeemed by the blood of the Lamb. Thank you for saving me and let it overpour into joy in your praise. Um, I like this little statement by R.C. Sproul. There's other enjoyment in, the, in this passage I'll point out in a, in a moment, but very profound statement. You've heard the family that prays together, stays together, or R.C. Sproul adapted that a little bit, and he says the church that plays together stays together. Just learning to have fellowship uh, together. You see in verse 47, where is joy in the passage? Where are they enjoying one another? They're... Uh, verse The end of verse 46. They were taking their meals together with gladness and sincerity of heart. A bunch of happy Christians just sitting around tables enjoying fellowship because their common bond was relationship with the Lord. It's a, um, a whole theme of scripture to be able to think about where true joy comes from. And we don't have time to elaborate, elaborate on that. Let me just implant a philosophical thought for you here. It is impossible for a human not to seek joy. It is impossible for a human not to seek pleasure. All humans will seek joy and pleasure. The question becomes, what will be the object of the joy and the pleasure? We are all always trying to seek joy 
and pleasure. You could even argue that a suicidal person was trying to seek some joy and pleasure. They got tired of the misery, and it's better to be dead than to continue to be miserable. Uh, All humans will seek joy. Does that bring new meaning to rejoice in the Lord? And again, I say rejoice. Uh, If you've never read any of John Piper's type of thinking, which comes out of Jonathan Edwards' type thinking, I would urge you to do some John Piper reading because uh, he talks about this theme on a regular basis, that it's not if you will seek joy and pleasure, it's what will you make the object of your joy and pleasure. So scripture talks a whole lot about enjoyment in the Lord and rejoicing in the Lord. And I find it refreshing to see the early church as the foundation. They're just enjoying relationship with the Lord and one another, which I hope the next 24 hours in this retreat will be for us as we just enjoy fellowship and singing together and eating together, etc. What are the counseling implications? There's some profound ones. All humans will seek joy. Your counselee came to you, or your disciplee is not content. <laughs> and you're helping them find true contentment and true satisfaction in relationship with the Lord. So, what do we see in Acts chapter 2? Foundation of the church. The church is launched on the day of Pentecost, a Sunday. So, this is what Sundays should be like. The harvest is coming in. The harvest has just started coming in. 3,000 are saved. What's the atmosphere? It's an atmosphere of caring. It's connecting with one another, approaching the Lord together, responding to each other's needs, and enjoying the Lord together. Now, here's what I'd like to do just to start our time together. I'm going to give you just a, a minute or two. And could you write, you won't have time to finish this, because then I'm going to pray, but... Could you just write down a brief outline or some thoughts of a prayer based upon what you just heard, a prayer to the Lord? What would you like to say to the Lord right now? And I gave you, at least on my outline, there's some blank space there. I don't know how it turned out on yours, but take some of the blank space and just start writing out a prayer to the Lord based upon what you just heard. What are the implications for you of what you just heard? And then I'll pray. I'm going to close with prayer. <clears throat> Maybe for your devotions tomorrow morning or sometime soon, you can finish writing out that prayer to the Lord, or even tonight before you go to sleep. 
Father, it is so easy for us in American culture, because of the culture around us, to be individualistic, be concerned about our tasks, our to-do list, and uh, not be tuned into the needs of others. Awaken us, Lord, to the needs of others. Help us to have a heart of compassion like you. Help us to learn to be more relational, which means allowing time for relationships, trying to stay connected with others. Lord, I pray for Calvary Bible and living hope that they would enjoy worship together, that they would um, connect with one another and just be saturated, just like the Acts chapter 2 is saturated with connecting, that they would um, be tuned in to needs of each other. And Lord, I, I pray for anyone here tonight that may think that they uh, they can't change, that they can't learn to be relational, that you would help them to see that they can be like you. Uh, you are the most relational being in the universe. Help us to be more like you. I need to be more like you, Lord. I need to be more relational. I need to be more loving. I am a selfish person. <clears throat> uh, help me to be more relational with my wife, with my children. Thank you, Lord, for the hope that you give us that we can grow in Christ-likeness. We dedicate uh, tomorrow to you. Help men to enjoy each other's company tonight and sleep well. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.